Hey everyone, again coming to you from the shores of the Gulf of Mexico here in Clearwater, Florida. Welcome to On the Sports Clock. Uh, we have a really cool show today, and we have uh, continued our Cubs streak. We had Scott Air on a few weeks ago, uh, followed up with Chip Carey, and I am so happy to be joined by two people, former Mets and Cubs pitcher Ed Lynch. Uh, after his playing career, Ed would hold several positions within Major League Baseball, including being the general manager for the Cubs, and Sharon Panazzo, who was the former director of media relations for the Cubs and is one of my close mentors and now colleagues with the not-for-profit we help out with. Uh, Ed and Sharon, great to have you both on. Appreciate you all uh, taking time to do this, and it was so awesome to see you all in Arizona a couple weeks ago. Thank you, Tyler. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, Tyler, this is uh, really great. Thanks for including us. We're excited uh, for the next hour, and yeah, we really enjoyed uh, watching that Cubs game with you. <laughs> Absolutely. Always always great to get to a Cubs game and, and hoping to get to Wrigley soon. Um, and yeah, just glad baseball's back for sure. So I want to start, I want to give each of you some time to really talk about your background, how you got started in baseball, jobs you held within the game, and just highlight uh, highlight some of that. And because I didn't go into too much depth, uh, so looking forward to hearing more. Okay, ladies first, Sharon. Well, I was just going to say, I'd rather go first and then you can follow up because your career is a lot more interesting and longer than mine. So I'd just as soon go first. So thank you. <laughs> um, well, obviously, I've known Ed for many years. Actually, I worked for Ed uh, when he was the general manager of the Chicago Cubs and then also um, had the pleasure of working with him when he was a player there as well. So my career started uh, way back at in the early 1980s. Um, always wanted to work in sports, found myself very fortunate and very lucky uh, that I was able to have an internship with the Boston Red Sox. And then from there, um, you know, right place in the right time, which is a lot of uh, how things work out in this game. Um, I had a full-time offer from the Chicago Cubs for what would be a yeah, coordinator position today. And I spent 24 years there. Uh, worked my way up the communications department to the head of media relations and uh, had a fantastic career there. And uh, I, I say I was I was part of 24 years of history there and then um, left left the Cubs and worked in entertainment, um, worked uh, with NBC Universal for 12 years. And now I'm kind of a free agent. So um, that's sort of uh, my career in a nutshell. Awesome. And and can you kind of talk about a little bit, Sharon, there? So you worked with some pretty awesome people there. I mentioned Chip Carey earlier, obviously Harry Carey. I'm sure we'll talk more about him later as well. Um, one of my other mentors, Chuck Wasserstrom. Uh, can you kind of talk about those folks and, and working with some of those people there in the media relations department? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Scott Ayer was a player during uh, my time there. Chip Carey was in the broadcast booth. Um, a, a, along with his grandfather, who was very close to me, um, you know, when I first started, H Harry was king. Well, he's king of Rush Street. I think that was his nickname. <laughs> yeah. he, he was just king for, of everything in that city, you know. Um, just so much history with him, and uh, you know, I got to travel with him on the road, and I. I Got to drink with him. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that was. I'm sure that was a good time. Uh, I have so many wonderful memories here. <laughs> you know, 
in a weird way, I also got to help plan his funeral. And uh, that was a, a weird and same time, very special time um, it, with my time there. It, it, he, he was family. I think I would say the same thing. You, you felt like you were family with Harry. And, uh, you know, when, when his era ended and, uh, you know, we we kind of moved on. I mean, he's, you know, he's still part of history there. You know, I mean, uh, he's got a rest, the, the restaurants still exist in the city and his persona and brand are still very strong. And he's been gone. Um, what did you say, Ed? When we February 14th, 1998. Yeah. I mean, think of how long ago that was. And he, he's, he's still King in, in Chicago. He, he always will be. Um, and you know, I got to work with, um, Sammy Sosa and was part of the historic race for the record in, in 98. And I mean, what an incredible experience that was. And, um, you know, looking back the first night game at Wrigley field, I, I think people even have in this day and age, didn't even realize that that was a thing that we had to fight to get lights at Wrigley field. <laughs> back in the late eighties. And, um, you know, I mean, I never got a world series ring, but I got close a couple of times and I always joked. Um, my last manager was dusty Baker. And when he got in the limo to go to the Wrigley field for his, you know, introduction press conference, I said to him, I said, you do know you're my 18th manager in 25 years. And he just kind of looked at me dumbfounded. He goes, you've been to 18 managers. I said, yes, I have a couple of <laughs> managed for a day or two but i had 18 managers and he said to me i, ho I hope i'm your last had five years, and he was my last <laughs> <laughs> those are awesome stories and, and definitely looking forward to to hearing more and, and everything and and uh would you mind introducing yourself and and we'll just continue talking talking cubs cub stories and and talking about wrigley field and all those great things well yeah sure i um yeah, I went to the University of South Carolina out of high school to play basketball. I played with some very good players there, and I played with guys like Alex English, who was an NBA Hall of Famer, Brian Winters, Mike Dunleavy. And, you know, I played basketball and baseball. I was a walk-on on the baseball team. I went over and asked for a tryout. And first, Bobby Richardson was the coach and wasn't going to give me a tryout. And then he saw me throw, and magically I got a uniform, you know. So I think I threw harder back then than I did in the big leagues. But I, after South Carolina, I was drafted by the Texas Rangers in 1977. Uh, actually, my double-A roommate was Dave Rigetti. At the end of the year, he got traded to the Yankees. And a year later, I got traded to the Mets, which was one of the biggest breaks of my career because, you know, I was a native New Yorker. And and the uh, let's face it, the Mets in those years were terrible. And so I, I knew I was going to get an opportunity. So I came up to the big leagues for the first time in 1980. And uh, I spent six and a half years there in New York with the with the Mets, and I got traded to the Cubs June 30th of 1986 of all times. The Mets went on to win the World Series that year, and the Cubs at that time were in last place. So I was I did get a ring though, and that ring means a lot to me. And I know you know Sharon said she never got a ring, and it, it's hard to describe if you're in the industry how much that ring means to people. It's it just. It just shows that you got to the top of the of the baseball world. But, um, you know, so when I went over to Chicago, I remember my first day there, Gene Michael was the manager. And I walked in the clubhouse. I got there late in about the fifth inning. And uh, in, in the in the 
eighth inning, he comes up to me and says, Hey, Ed, you know, we're tied. If we go extra innings, you're going to be the pitcher in the 10th inning. So the ninth inning uh, started, um, I think Lee Smith through the top of the ninth and we went into the bottom of the ninth tied. And so I'm out there warming up in the bullpen and um, they got us out. So now we're going to go to the top of the 10th. So I'm walking into the, to the mound from the bullpen and the umpire comes out and he's waving his arms. And I'm like, well, what's going on? And they called the game because of darkness. And that was like a movie to me. I had never played on a field without lights since, since high school. And so I, I'm standing out there and everybody's running off the field. And I'm like, holy mackerel. I feel like I'm in a, it's a Hollywood production from 1925 or something. So so I was with the Cubs for a year and a half as a player, and then I retired. I went back to Miami. I went to law school, fully intending to practice law. And right before I graduated, I got a call from Joe McElvain, who was the general manager, newly named general manager of the San Diego Padres, and he offered me the position of uh, director of player development. So in 19- January of 1991, I graduated law school in December of 1990. I went full-time, so I graduated ahead of my class. Who didn't graduate till that June. So I went out to San Diego. I was there for three years, 91, two, and three. And then uh, Joe got fired in 1993 and went back to New York as the Mets GM. And I went with him as the assistant GM. And uh, that was 1994. And then, of course, the strike hit in 1994. And, uh, you know, we sat around and did a lot of nothing, you know, the rest of the year. And then going into the next spring, um, you know, in 1995, I got a call from Andy McPhail in October of 94. And, uh, you know, he, he offered me the job of uh, general manager. And um, so I came over to Chicago October 10th of 1994. I was named general manager. And that's when I first really met Sharon. I knew who she was because she was there when I was a player, but I really hadn't talked to her much because Ned Coletti was the PR guy that traveled with us. And and uh, I met Sharon then. I remember the day we had the press conference, and she was great. I mean, that was a tough crowd to handle there in Chicago. It's a lot. It was a lot different than New York. New York, you had bigger numbers, but <laughs> Chicago, you had some really different personalities. I mean, guys who were there for forever. So we went through uh, we went through replacement players in my first spring as general manager, and Sharon can talk about those guys and those poor guys and and. Um, you know, we went almost to opening day. And I remember sitting around uh, a meeting. We're going over the roster. And I remember with Jim Riggleman, who I brought over as manager. I worked with Jim in San Diego. And I remember we were sitting there talking about our players. And I said to Jim, well, who do you like in the bullpen? He says, well, in the setup role, I, I like Joe Housie. And uh, and just to let you know what, what where we were at then, Joe Housie was our area scout in Florida at that time. So <laughs> that shows you the kind of players we were were trying to get to play on our team and then the the the, the uh the, it got it got settled you know right before sharon you were there in in texas when we settled this strike correct yes yes I yeah was. and and we brought all those guys into a conference room and the tribune at that time was you know they were real strong you know management you know organization okay they you know they went to battle with the unions constantly so they they had a soft spot in their heart for these players so they wound up giving every player i think an extra five thousand dollars that we sent them all home and there was a lot of tears in in that room and it really it really it brought me back to the fact that 
you know, not all players are hardened major league players. These were guys that were probably working at Jiffy Lube, and now they got a chance to play in the big leagues, you know. And so we sent all those guys home, and then we came back to spring training for a second spring training, and uh, and that was in 95. And 95, we had a good year, and, um, and then 96, 97. And I remember the morning, it was Valentine's Day, and I got a call from Andy McPhail very early in the morning. I was already in Arizona. I had just arrived, and he said, I got a call from Sharon Panazzo at, at uh, 3 o'clock this morning. I said, oh, that can't be good. And, she said, and, he, and Andy said, yeah, Harry Carey had a massive medical event having dinner in Palm Springs. And um, so our, our team doctor, I remember, was uh, uh, it was the it was the Robin Williams movie we used to call him. What was his name, Sharon? Patch Adams. Patch Adams, Doctor Adams, brilliant doctor. And I I described what I was told about Harry to him. Harry was still alive, and he said he's not going to make it. And sure enough, I think the next day he died. And uh, we all flew back to Chicago. You talk about a weird event. We went to that cathedral, that, uh, Our Lady of, I forget the name of the cathedral, right downtown Chicago. Yep. And it was like the Tonight Show. I mean, I'm sitting in the uh, in a, in the pew, and here's a, a TV camera on a tripod next to me. And people were up there making speeches, and everybody's laughing. And it, it was one of the weirdest events, certainly the strangest um, funeral I'd ever been to in my life. And uh, but that year in 1998 was a special year. I mean, and I, I can't say enough for the job that Sharon did because the attention, the number of writers we had following us around as we got into the summer had to be we had to have 50 to 100 media people at every game. And, and you know, the facilities at Wrigley Field were or are not good. I mean, when I talk about Wrigley Field. You know, it sounds sacrilegious, but it was a tough place to work. I mean, I, I literally did not could not hire someone because I did not have a, an office for them. And that's how small the place was. And then they converted this room downstairs that was a tr where they kept all the fertilizer for the ground crew. So that was like our our media room. And it was really small. And in the summer was hot. And we'd get packed in there like sardines. And every day was just I don't know how Sharon did it. I, I, she did a great job. And she was lucky, though, that she had Sammy Sosa because Sammy absolutely loved it. He loved the attention. And Sharon could talk about that a little, a little bit. And I'm sure Sharon talked to her counterpart with St. Louis. And, you know, Mark McGuire was a very reluctant participant in the hoopla that was going on at that time. But Sammy just absolutely loved it. And that was a special year. And um, that's a year I'll never forget. But, uh, you know, Harry was uh, he was something else, uh, you know. I've never met before or since anybody like that. Um, he was an incredible celebrity. I mean, he was bigger than big and, you know, uh, and, and an unforgettable guy. For sure. And, and, you know, just going back in, of course, I grew up watching Harry and, and Chip and Steve and, and all those guys broadcasting. And, you know, it was just some of my fondest memories were, you know, watching Harry Carey and then going back now and watching the videos and just realizing how how special those moments were and how special he was and, and his family was. And, you know, that's part of Wrigley Field and, and the history for sure. And, you know, many other people as well and many other things about Wrigley. So I, I want to ask you all, or both of you, what makes Wrigley so special? 
Sharon, go ahead. Wow. Well, I think, you know, you have to talk history. I mean, obviously the park has changed a lot. I mean, I don't know Ed, how often you get back over there, but you know, it's, it's very different from, from, you know, when I left, you know, it's the neighborhoods more commercialized, big jumbotron, you know, I mean, it, the, the park moved into the 21st century and, um, but there was a time when it, it, day baseball was king and no lights and um you you felt the history you could you you could say babe ruth stood at home plate and and a host of other you know historic type players and you know you can't say that in a lot of parks and it was just a special place and half of it was the charm like ed said you know my me my media room was a former fertilizer room and <laughs> But it was unique to Wrigley, and people would joke about it, but it was special. I mean, you know, it wasn't fancy, and it got the job done, but you were, you could, you could picture what happened 100 years before, whereas, you know, these modern parks, they're beautiful, and they have all the amenities and all of that, but you don't feel the history, and I think that's what made Wrigley special to me, and, and you know, no elevator. I, I, can I just tell? <laughs> That's right. Press would complain like you would not believe that they had to walk to the press box. Okay, you know when it's hundred degrees out, it's a long walk. I, I'm going to give you that, but you know I would have to go up and down that those ramps <laughs> seven, eight, ten times a day. You know, I mean it was part of the job, which is why I wore sneakers. People always joked about my sneakers. Um, Funny anecdote about my sneakers, going back to Andy McPhail, um, you know, at one point I was wearing black sneakers because I thought that they were close enough to shoes. And, um, you know, trying to maintain a professional look at the ballpark was different when, you know, and difficult when you were challenged by um, no elevator, um, you know, you're running around down on the concourse and it's, you know, it's dusty and whatever. And I once said to him, I said, yeah, look at Andy. I now have black sneakers. They, they look, they look like black shoes. And Andy said to me, Sharon, if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck, then it's a duck. I guess he doesn't like my black sneakers. I think that's. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I got two stories about Wrigley Field that illustrate two of the biggest things about that place, good and bad. On the good side, I mean, people just love to be there. I mean, they just famous people. And right across the hallway from my my office was a restroom. And I remember going in there and and I'm at the urinal and, and I'm washing my hands and there's a guy in the stall and the door opens and the guy is washing his hands next to me. And I look over there and it's Tom Hanks, you know, and, you know, he's there to sing, take me out to the ball game. You know, Tim Robbins, Mel Gibson, you know, the, the, the people and they were all in awe of Wrigley Field. I remember one day I was sitting at my desk. And my secretary, Arlene Gill, who was probably more powerful around there than me, but she said, hey, the front desk just called. There's a guy out there that says he's John Fogarty from Credence, one of my favorite musical groups, and he'd like to say hello. 
So, you know, if it was anywhere else, I was like, yeah, right, get the guy out of here. But, I, you know, so I walked out to the front reception area, and there he is, John Fogarty, sitting there. And I said, come on back, John. And he comes back, and we're talking. And I said, hey, what are we doing here? He goes, what do you mean? I said, I know where you want to go. And it was a beautiful, like, early November day. And I said, let's go. So we walked out to the mound. And it was a beautiful 4 o'clock in the afternoon, a little chilly. It was almost like you could see Babe Ruth coming up to home plate for the called shot. And John Fogarty's eyeballs were like saucers. I mean, they were huge. And I could just see on his face the feeling of the history and the overwhelming, as Sharon said, it's not like walking into Dodger Stadium or Camden Yards. I mean, you're walking into a place that really hadn't changed that much since when Babe Ruth hit that home run in 1932 during the World Series. So that feeling of history was palpable. I mean, you could feel it, you could taste it. I mean, it was just, and it really attracted people and they, and they couldn't get enough of it. Now on the bad side, I remember if I sent a player down, I have to go down into the clubhouse, but I have to go down into the clubhouse before the game ended. Cause if I tried to get down from my box behind home plate, as Sharon said, there's no elevators. There's no, you know, elevator going from, my box level or from the office level down into the concourse and have a private entrance into the clubhouse. I mean, it, it just wasn't that way. So for me to get down to the clubhouse when the game ended in time to talk to a player, because I always wanted to be there when Jim Riggleman told a guy we're sending him out, I had to leave at, you know, in the eighth inning. So I come down in the eighth inning from my box and I come down the stairs. I go out into the concourse. I'm walking down the concourse. The game is going on. I think we had a one-run lead. So I go in Jim's office, and I'm sitting there watching the game on television. And sure enough, the visiting team, they scored a run in the top of the ninth. Now it's tied. So I'm sitting in Jim's office, and now we don't score in the bottom of the ninth. So I want to go out. I want to watch the game from the stands. So I go out the concourse, up the ramp, down about 12 rows behind the dugout. There's nobody in the section. And I'm sitting there, and an usherette comes up to me. They say, buddy, let's go. And I said, no. She goes, do you have a ticket? I said, uh, no, I'm the general manager. She goes, yeah, right. And I'm the, I'm the queen of England. Move your ass. And I started <laughs> laughing. And I got up, and I walked back down to Jim's office. And the next day, I used to go down the same way, down the stands, come out that gate behind home plate and go into the dugout and talk to the writers. And she's standing there. And she looks at me, and she had the most horrified look on her face. And I said, oh, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. And, oh, I can see the relief on her face, you know. And that's not going to happen in any other ballpark. I'll tell you right there. So the place was certainly unique. And, you know, what Sharon said is so true. When I came up to the big leagues in 1980, that area around the ballpark was not real good. It was – you know, I had a reputation for gangs and drugs, and it was pretty run down. And those bars in that area, in the area around the club, were really kind of raunchy. You know, and and this retired cop named Murphy bought a couple of buildings at center field and opened up his bar, Murphy's Bleachers, and made a fortune over time. You know, I heard he he went from being a retired cop to having his own castle in Ireland. You know, I mean. It was such a unique place, and it gentrified, certainly. By the time I left in after the 2000 season, property values in that neighborhood have skyrocketed. I'm sure they've skyrocketed even more. So it was a unique place, and uh, there'll never be another one like it. And, you know, 
I look at the National League now. I, I haven't pitched in a, in a major league game since 1987. There's two parks left in the National League that I pitched in, only two, Dodger Stadium and Wrigley Field. That's it. Some parks are on their second stadium since I pitched. So, you know, Atlanta, I mean, I you know, I pitched at Fulton County Stadium, then they went to Turner Field, now they're at the other park. So, you know, it, it, it has lasted through time. And it's almost like stepping into a time machine. It's a really a special place. For sure. And you talk about the 98 season. Uh, I know we talked a little bit about that. And then also, uh, Kerry Wood comes up and strikes out 20 in one game. So could you both talk about that and just being at the ballpark? I asked Chip Kerry the same thing. And, you know, he provided it from a broadcast perspective. But would you all be able to provide some perspective from, from your all's perspective? Go ahead, Sharon. Uh, well, I can say that. Um, you know, one of my roles in the press box was I kept the official scorebook that, you know, those volumes are sitting in a, a, a room somewhere at Wrigley Field. And I got to score that game that's in the official scorebook. So I feel like that's kind of like my piece of the historic day. Um, you know, it's like anytime anything like that uh, happens in a game when you know, as as the game is going on, that something spectacular and and record-breaking is happening you're you know from my perspective i'm i'm planning my post-game press conference you know media starts showing up in the middle of the game that would not normally have been there so from from my perspective it was really about preparing for that that moment when we're gonna you know put carrie in the press room and how we're gonna handle it knowing that we're gonna have volumes of Chicago press coming in and getting phone calls from national press wanting to it was really kind of really from, you know, for, for me was from the um, ma managing the press perspective, but also, you know, I love the game. So to sit there and watch that performance was incredible. You know, I got, I've gotten to see so many um, incredible athletic accomplishments. You know, I, I never got to see a no hitter, which, um, you know, I'm sad that that didn't happen, but you know, so many other, uh, big performances and, you know, that, that performance, 20 strikeouts from, from Kerry Wood was, you know, a day you will never forget. And you just sit there and just, um, you know, remark to yourself about wow this kid, this kid can throw. <laughs> well, Kerry was special. I'll tell you, it started on draft day. My first draft as general manager was June of 1995. And we were picking fourth in the country. And I remember the clear number one pick was Darren Erstad, the, uh, the punter from Nebraska. I saw him punt <laughs> in the Orange Bowl. And uh, the Angels took him one. He was clearly going to be the 1-1. One -one. And we knew that Ben Davis, a catcher from the Philadelphia area, was going to be the second pick by the Padres. And um, we didn't know who the third pick was going to be. The, the third pick went was going to the Seattle Mariners. And we thought they might take Kerry. And, you know, ironically, uh, we decided, you know, we're before the draft started, I said, okay, it, it, you know, if we don't get Kerry Wood, we were taking Todd Helton. Even though we had Mark Grace, we were going to take Todd Helton. So it shows you how quirky fate is in the game of baseball because Todd Helton had no idea he could have been a Chicago Cup. You know, he had no idea what was going on behind the scenes. And he goes into Colorado and has an unbelievable career. 
So I remember Seattle was up, and it says the Seattle Mariners draft. And in those days, if they said redraft number, that means it was somebody who's always already been drafted. So it's probably it's a college player. <laughs> so Seattle takes redraft number. As soon as they said that, we knew they weren't taking Kerry Wood, and they took uh, Jose Cruz Jr. And so, of course, we took Kerry. And, uh, you know, he worked his way to the big leagues. And uh, that day was special. And, you know, I was a big box score guy when I was a kid. The box scores have gotten so muddled with all this nonsense now. But back in the day, it, the box scores were so clean. It was innings, hits, runs, earn runs, walks, strikeouts. That's it. So when you look at a line that says 9-1, Zero 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 twenty. That's a heck of a line score right there. I'll yeah. tell you what. You don't see that every day. And I remember after the game, a writer asked me, "Is he the greatest twenty-year-old pitcher you've ever seen?" I said, "No." And the guy looked at me like I was crazy, and I said, "Dwight Gooden. You know, I pitched with Dwight Gooden in New York when he was twenty. Now it's the greatest performance I've ever seen by any pitcher of any age, but uh, Dwight Gooden." was a better pitcher at age 20. He, he was already a, a veteran in the league. But anyway, that day was unbelievable. And Kerry, you look at the replays, he was so young, huh, Sharon? He looked like a kid. I mean, it was it was almost like a kid coming out of his prom or out of a high school game. And uh, that day was certainly special. And talking more about that game, too. So I rewatched that game probably four or five times. and And I asked Chip about this, too. Outside of being at Wrigley Field and obviously, you know, seeing what would go on later, but what a crappy day at the ballpark. I mean, cloudy, overcast, cold. Raining. Yeah, and then Kerry even said in a, in a later interview, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but something to the gist of he just wasn't even really feeling good that day either. I mean, he had no idea. I don't think anybody had any idea he was going to go out and do what he did, but then he was like, I personally didn't feel like I was really, quote unquote, going to have a great game. So. Um, and then to have something like that uh, is very special and something that's still talked about for sure. Well, and you know, the other thing too, Tyler, is if you look at the Houston Astros, that was in May. That was, you know, just short of the middle of May. They were leading the league in every offensive category. The players on that team, they had two Hall of Famers in the lineup with Biggio and Bagwell. I mean, they had great players on that team and he made them look like little leaguers. I mean, it was, it was an incredible, incredible performance incredible performance and uh and you know believe it or not Sharon said she's never seen a no hitter I had never seen a no hitter live in the major leagues I had never seen all my 40 years in baseball you know probably 37 of them at the major league level I never saw a no hitter New York Mets never had one you know I mean I pitched with Dwight Gooden for two and a half years when he was overmatching the league and he never had a no hitter Tom Seaver never had a no hitter with the Mets it's incredible that that these guys never had a no hitter. So, I thought we had one chance for that one that day, but it was a clean single. It, it was to Kevin Ory's left. It was clean base hit, but it was an incredible day at the ballpark. Definitely, and I and um, I also want to talk a little bit. So, Sharon, uh, you talked about you worked under Ed, and and uh, do you have any funny stories that you're willing to share about Ed? And then Ed, I'm going to ask you the same thing, either any funny or, or just stories that you think the audience would share or would be, be interested in. And then Ed, I'm going to ask you the same thing as well. Wow. No, I can't. It wasn't really, it wasn't, 
it wasn't really that relaxed of a uh, uh, a uh, environment. I mean, the pressure was on every day, and I don't know how Sharon did it. You know, there was, uh, yeah, I think, you know, from the time Ed Ed got there, I mean, there was, you know, he walked into the 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 strike, so. Deal that, you know, you're all, it's almost like crisis management the entire time. And then you get into 98 and, you know, Harry's death was a big blow um, to, to all of us, to the team, to the city and, you know, how you're, um, you're going to fill that void. And, 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 you know, we're all part of those conversations and, and making that plan work as to what we did going forward. And then the race for the record, you know, um, and, and the difference, and, and um, Ed alluded to this, the difference for, for us was that Sammy embraced the, the role that he had. He embraced the attention. Mark was very reluctant, and that's his personality. And so Sammy took the lead on everything. And, and Sammy, from a PR perspective for me, never said no to anything, So which kept me really busy, um, but also um was great for the team and you know i i think if, if everybody looks back you know 98 you know from the strike and f fans were really upset about the strike and they were mad at management they're mad at the players um you know the game was slow to come back and 98 really was when the game had an opportunity to engage the country in something that was special and that you could root for both of these individuals who were so i mean i mean they were great players and and just putting on a show every time you you watch them play that year and so you know that was really responsible for bringing for baseball rebounding because it brought fans back to the ballpark it, 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 you know, increased the conversation about baseball. People wanted to talk about Sammy. They wanted to talk about Roger Maris in the record. And it, it just, it was um, a unique year. So it was so busy. And then, you know, forward to that, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, in, in 2000, right around the corner from that, you know, we got to go and open the season in Japan mm -hmm. uh, with the Mets. And, you know, it was always like, as Ed said, there's always something going on. So you're always, you're just in the trenches all the time. <laughs> so. Yeah, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a couple of funny stories. In 1995, well, first of all, the, the 98, with, I can't tell you how many writers were around the ballpark every day. I mean, we had to set up like those those ropes that you that theaters would have. You know, the usher would put in front of the door. We had to set them up around the the cage because we couldn't have a hundred writers standing at the cage to get in the player's way. You know, mm -hmm. and I remember we finally we finally clinched. You know, the uh, we well we had to play an extra game. Uh, that was that was a heck of a heck of a day, huh, Sharon? Well, we played that extra game. And uh, we beat the Giants, and you know, uh, Michael Michael Jordan threw out the first pitch, and Bill Murray sung "Take Me Out to the Ball Game." The pressure I had never, and I was I've pitched in some pretty high pressure games in New York, but I had never felt that kind of pressure because it was our 163rd game. It was a regular season game. It was a playoff game, basically to see who's going to wild card's going to be. We were tied with the Giants, 
and we won the game. And I remember the next day we flew to Atlanta and we get, uh, we go to the ballpark. We're going to play the Braves. And there was maybe like 25 media people there. And I turned to Sharon and I said, geez, finally we get a break from the media and that we're in the postseason, and we're getting a break from the media because you know, all the, 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 the home run race was over. The regular season was over. Mm -hmm. So, and I remember we, we both got a good laugh out of that one because we had had 100 to 150 riders there every day. And now all of a sudden we're in the postseason where most clubs see riders a lot more than they normally do. And we saw maybe a third or a fourth <laughs> of the number of riders. And I thought that was pretty funny. The other, the other funny one was, Sharon, I, don't, I, I know you remember this, but in 1995, we went down to the last weekend of the season. It was the first year of the wild card. And there was a situation where we could have possibly won the wild card. I think the Rockies wound up winning it, but we were playing the Houston Astros, I think on Saturday with one game left or Friday with two games left. And Randy Myers, our closer, and Sharon can talk for an hour about him, and so can I. He gave up a game-tying home run in the ninth inning to a guy named James Mouton of the Houston Astros. And I remember in my, I was sitting in my box, and I see this ball go over the fence to tie the game. And in the corner of my eye, I see a guy, it turns out it's a 27-year-old drunk stockbroker, decides he's going to charge the mound. Oh. And he, remember that? And he charges the mound. Randy Myers, who's built like a brick, you know what? And within three seconds, Randy's got him around the head. Sean Dunstan has him by the ankles, and they've got the medieval rack working now. They're they're pulling this guy. They're stretching this guy. And I said, oh, my God. I think we, we wound up winning the game. I don't remember. But I remember I grabbed Sharon. We're walking down to the clubhouse. And I said, Sharon, i got to talk to Randy and make sure that he, you know, he says the right thing. This is the lawyer in me now, you know. So I get down there and I say, Randy, before the press comes in, listen, because I thought he was going to get sued, you know, for beating this guy up basically on the mound. And so Sharon and I are standing there and I said, Randy, listen, you thought he had a weapon. You were in danger, you know, you were in fear of your safety and you didn't know, you know, the situation. You were really in fear of your life. And that's why you did what you did. And sure enough, the writers come in and all they all race up to Randy and verbatim out of his mouth. He goes, you know, I was in fear of my life. I didn't know if he had a weapon. It was perfect. <laughs> and I looked at Sharon and winked and she just laughed. You probably don't remember that part of it. But <laughs> Randy Myers, I mean, his locker, he would have hand grenades and, and RPGs and traffic cones and one of the most unique guys. And I loved him to death. Wow. That is that's insane. And, and it's just. You know, hearing those stories are things that we don't, you know, hear all the time. And so I appreciate you. You know, I know I kind of put you on the spot, but I appreciate you uh, offering those up for sure. Uh, last thing here, too. So I um, want to talk to about I'm sure we could talk for another hour or two about the time with the Cubs. But really, uh, after the Cubs days, what, what have you all been doing since then? And what are you all doing now? And, and just want to hear about what life has been like post Cubs. Sharon. Um, well, after the Cubs, um, I went to work for NBC Universal, working in the world of entertainment communications, which um, also, you know, really interesting, you know, sports is entertainment, um, but, uh, you know, working in the world of TV um, has been, was, was really fun and interesting, got to work with some really interesting people like our former president and um, Howard Stern and uh, some really 
um, amazing performers like Tony Bennett. And I mean, I could just, you know, go on with a, a litany and list of um, the incredible artists and performers and actors that I've gotten to work with. And, um, you know, I think um, the pandemic was kind of an eye-opening experience for me. I, I loved living in New York, but decided that I really wanted to have a different lifestyle. So I came out to Arizona, which is where Ed also lives, um, and uh, love living out here. And right now I'm working on some, some um, freelance projects. I'm actually working on a really interesting um, independent film. Um, with a group of producers. It's a baseball documentary. Um, it's based on the book by Mike Soule, if a, uh, The Pitch That Killed, which is the Ray Chapman story. Ray Chapman was a Cleveland Indian player in 1920 who was um, killed by a pitch from the Yankees' Carl uh, Mays. And so the documentary is going to tell that story and then also kind of uh, dive into the... Um, rivalry with the Yankees, with the Indians, talk about rivalries in general. You know, it's just going to be a really good um, a baseball movie. You know, I think that's something we haven't seen in a while. And uh, so I'm excited to be working on that project and um, enjoying life in Arizona. Definitely. We're, uh, def I know I mentioned you're helping out with the not-for-profit that I volunteer for along with Eric Cusin. And we just uh, really enjoy having you, the work you've done with that and, and the work um the work what we're doing over there is amazing and so it's been awesome to not only have you as a mentor but then uh have you as a colleague with that as well it's it's we're doing amazing things for sure well and you know the other um piece of that is that you know the pandemic really has illustrated and demonstrated how important uh, mental health is for everyone and um i love the mission of the nonprofit. um you know, everybody should feel comfortable if they need help to ask for help. And, um, you know, the the motto, it's not one in five people who are affected. Um, it's five in five. Everyone is affected in some way in, in you know, with, with mental health. So I'm excited to be working um, and as part of the advisory board for the organization and um, working with you, Tyler and Eric Cusin and, and the rest of the team. So um, everybody, it, it, they're doing great work and it's really important, especially now. That's awesome. And like I said, we're, we're so glad to have you uh, working with us. And, and Ed, what have you been up to and what's, uh, how's life for you down in Arizona? Very good. I mean, I don't have, my life has been a little less exciting than Sharon. She's been involved with some very, obviously, very high profile people in in uh, entertainment and politics. And uh, I, I think it's just great what she's accomplished. Yeah. But when I left the GM job, I moved out here to Arizona. I stayed with the Cubs as a professional scout. I was with the Cubs an additional I want to say nine years. And then I got a call from someone who I knew at the Toronto Blue Jays. And I went over the Blue Jays for seven years. So I scouted for 16 years, you know, Major League Scout. I really enjoyed that. And then after the 16 season, I retired and I, I, you know, had a great year, year and a half. And then my wife, Kristen, looked at me and said, I think it's time to get out of the house. You know, <laughs> so, uh, so I, um, I thought of, you know, the, the things that I know in life, baseball and moving. <laughs> so yeah. I uh, had a good feel for real estate. So I'm a realtor now in Scottsdale, Arizona. I really enjoy it. You know, the market is crazy out here and uh, keeps me busy. Get to make a little money. 
do I miss the game of baseball? Sure. I was there for 40 years in the, in the industry. I, I really don't know the industry as well as I used to. Uh, uh, the game has changed immensely. The way the game is played, the way the players are evaluated. Um, a lot has changed. Not all for good either, but it has changed quite a bit. So I'm very happy and content doing what I'm doing and and enjoying life. For sure. And Ed, I want to tell you, so I met Sharon in, in New York. Uh, got We got connected through through one of our mentors, Chuck, that, that I mentioned earlier. Um, and then I believe I told you this in Arizona, but it's just funny how things come full circle. And, and of course, we sat next to each other at the game a couple weeks ago. But the first time I met you was at the Long Island Ducks game you were coaching. And I had saw Sharon in her office that morning. I went over and visited with her for a little bit. And I said, hey, I'm going to the Ducks game tonight and, and going to see, you know, Ed, Ed Lynch is coaching over there, who I I know, you know, and he, she goes, tell Ed, I said hello. And I'm like, Okay, you know, so I'm, you know, on a mission now to make sure I tell you that Sherrod said hello. So after the national anthem, I yell, hey, Ed, and you turn around and you're like, you're probably like, who is this guy? You know, and I just said, Chuck Wasser, Straub, and Sherrod Panazzo say hello. And it's right before game time. And so I'm sure the timing could have been a little bit better, but you gave me a nice wave. And so that was my, my first interaction. But I was like, I... I was like, I yelled at the whole crowd was probably like, what's this guy doing? You know, <laughs> I, I remember that day. Yes, very well. So the game, game got rained out. So I still have not seen a Long Island Ducks game. I was going to go to opening <laughs> day last year and the game, uh, then COVID hit, but I do have my ticket already. Tickets went on sale two Wednesdays ago at 9 a.m. And so I was on my computer at 8.55 and got my ticket. So <laughs> I will be you. there. Back. You know, uh, one last thing too, before we get into Tyler's five, uh, if you both could share one piece of advice that you would give my listeners who are either wanting to work in baseball or wanting to um, just achieve their dream, if there's one piece of advice you could give, what would that be? Sure. Um, well, you know, I'm going to say uh, never give up because you just never know when your chance might happen. And a lot of times it's being in the right place at the right time. And it's, um, you know, obviously doing the work and getting the experience and um, a little bit of luck. But, um, I mean, I think both Ed and I will tell you we feel pretty blessed to have been in the game of baseball for as long as we, we were. And, um, you know, it's a special place. And if that's your dream, then you should never give it up. And I know it's yours, Tyler. So... <laughs> You don't, you just don't give up. You keep working towards it because you work hard and, and people recognize that. And, um, with a little bit of luck, you can, you, you can, you can get your big break. Yeah. I, sure. I, I can't, I can't say it any better. I, I, I will tell you though, if you love what you're doing for a living, you'll never work a day in your life and, and, um, you know, be persistent and be resilient. Never don't ever take no for an answer. And I, I, I tell, I get these calls all the time from young people who want to get into major league baseball and they want to be, you know, I tell them a couple things. I say, listen, you know, there's 30 major league teams, but there's 120 minor league teams. So if you think you're just going to walk in and become the assistant PR director of the New York Yankees, the chances are not very good. I mean, so, you know, try for that, but remember for every New York Yankees, there's the Long Island Ducks and independent ball. There's the, 
you know, the uh, Great Lakes Loons, a Dodgers uh, A club in Michigan. You know, there's the Albuquerque Dukes. You know, there's so there's all kinds of professional baseball. And if it's your dream, get your name out there. Be persistent. You know, get the baseball directory, Baseball America directory. Look at the, uh, you know, the, the mailing address emails of every team in baseball and, and get your message out there. Tell them who you are. You know, do your homework. Put together a good resume and be aggressive and don't take no for an answer. You know, you'll be a pain in the ass, but that's how you get in into the industry. So just, you know, be positive. Uh, if you have a passion for the game, it, it won't be work for you. You'll you'll love working at, you know, do what you have to do. And as Sharon said, you know, if you get knocked down, get up and keep trying. That's great advice. And I really appreciate you both sharing that. And and again, appreciate the mentorship uh, both of you have provided for me personally and and uh, just really enjoyed our conversation today and, and hope to have you on you both on again sometime down the road. Uh, I want to get to our last segment here because I know we're about at time, but it's called Tyler's Five. And what it is, is it's just five random get to know you questions that have absolutely nothing to do with anything. And they're kind of made to put you on the spot. So I don't tell them to my guests in advance. So uh, first one is going to be favorite ballpark outside of Wrigley. Sharon, do you want to go first? Fenway Park. Fenway. Good one. Um, well, I mean, back when I was playing, I loved Shea Stadium. I grew up in New York. My dad used to take us to games there at Shea Stadium. It opened in 1964 when I was eight years old. I remember going to Met games there in New York. Great place to pitch, grass field, ball didn't carry, jets roaring over, tough place to hit. I, I really did like Shea Stadium. I, I think now when I was scouting, uh, it's hard to beat places like San Diego, and, you know, as Sharon said, these ballparks now are so different that, you know, when I was playing, it was that round, multi-purpose rubber and cement feel. They're all exactly the same, you know. So I, to answer your question, I would say Shea Stadium. Both are good choices. And I never made it out to Shea. Uh, Sharon, I've been done a tour of Fenway, but hoping to get to Fenway for a game this year. And, and uh Pittsburgh's on my list too. So I definitely want to check Pittsburgh out. Uh, San Diego is, is another one. So appreciate you all uh, um, answering that. Um, second question. You're at a ballpark at a ball game. What is your go-to ballpark food? <laughs> What'd you say? Sorry. Oh, I said, it's gotta be a hot dog and I gotta have a beer with it. Oh, absolutely. 100%. <laughs> Yeah, obviously. I mean, you know, there's something to be said for when you walk into San Diego or L.A. and you get sushi and like black tea, you know, but I mean, there's something to be said for that. But you got to go with a hot dog and a cold beer and, um, you know, you can't go wrong there. Absolutely. I always said growing up, I said my first beer is going to be at Wrigley Field. And so I didn't <laughs> achieve that dream. I turned 21 and I don't think I went to a game for like two more years. So I didn't wait that long, but but that was my dream growing up starting at when I knew what, what a beer at a ball game was. I uh, said my first one's going to be after I turned 21 at Wrigley Field. So I uh, had several there since then though, not going to lie. <laughs> Pay, paid the, I think the prices are up to 12.50 now. So <laughs> <laughs> third one, favorite board game. Sure. I told you it's meant no, to put you on the spot. 
Monopoly, but that's only if I get to be the banker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I was a kid, there was a there was a game, and it was a map of the world, and you had armies. I think it was was it Risk? That was the game we all played in the summertime. You know, Monopoly, of course, but Monopoly's too easy. So I'm going to say the game it was called Risk. I think both good good ones um i liked monopoly uh risk i think i played a couple times and then there, of course there's always the classic checkers um but then the game of life was also my favorite because it kind of just remember that game i remember that game <laughs> fourth question here uh phone app you use the most phone app hmm. sharon that's a good one. I'm thinking, what do I? I'm, I'm looking at my phone actually, going. What <laughs> well, you know, I'll go because being a realtor, you're constantly looking for for addresses, you know. And I remember, you know, being in college and driving from Miami, Florida to Columbia, South Carolina, and having a map, you know, with a flashlight, trying to find these different roads. You know, I-95 didn't didn't go through, so. I don't think young people really understand the value of Google Maps. And I, and I would say that, and, and probably Google, you know, I remember as a kid, if, if you had a, a test, like who was the first president of General Motors, you know, and you'd have to go to the library and the Dewey yep. Decimal System and spend, then you finally find the book and you get there and someone had taken it out. And you get on your Google and you see like William Durant, first uh, president of General Motors. You know, it, it takes 10 seconds. So I would say Google and Google Maps are, are right there for me. Yeah, and I'm going to have to concur. Now, now that I think about it and I look at my phone, those are probably the, the I mean, who doesn't use Google every, every single day? Every, every day. Yep. So, yeah. Awesome. Last question. Last book that you just read. And I'll preface it by saying, uh, Sharon, you're going to laugh, but uh, mine was a Cubs book. Uh, but I also, before that, Ed, I have to share this. So I got the book. Um, it's called, it was about that 86 Mets team. And I can't remember the name now. It's in, it's in my my office. Uh, Probably the bad guys, the bad guys won. Probably that's it. I think it was the King of Qu Queens, maybe, or something okay, like that. I don't know that, that one. But they did a chapter on every single Met from that team. Uh, so that one was my the second to last one. But the last one, of course, was a Cubs one for me. <laughs> well, Sharon? Um, I actually, I read quite often. So, but I usually, you know, I, I don't read sports books. I stick to my mysteries and thrillers. Um, there's a book that was um, really good that I read recently called, I believe it was, it begins at the end or something like that. Oh, it's going to drive me nuts. But before that, the last good book I read was when the, Where the Crawdads Sing, which was phenomenal. That was not a mystery or thriller, really. So, um, but that was really well written. Well, like Sharon, I love to read and I love to read fiction books. And I've read every Michael Connolly book, every Harry Bosch book, every Lee Child Jack Reacher book. I've read every John Sanford, the, uh, you know, his series. Um, right now I'm reading the biography of Steve Jobs. And um, it's fairly interesting. You know, he's a guy from my era. You know, he was a year and a day older than me. 
graduated a year early from high school, like I did. Graduated in 72. I graduated in 73. And it, it's a good read. I just started it. And uh, he's a very unique individual and uh, died way too young and accomplished some great things. And and this is a, you know, this is not, this is an unfiltered um, biography. You know, it's got some good in there and it's got some not so good. So I find that refreshing. It's not just a puff piece. It's a, it's a hard hitting biography. I'm one of the most dynamic uh, product designers and engineers of our era. So that's what I'm reading right now. That's awesome. And, and definitely I enjoy reading as well. And it's, uh, I think, I think for a lot of us, that's probably what we spent COVID doing a lot of reading and, and it's so easy now with, with online reading, you know, I do, I just order a lot of my books online and have it sent straight to my phone. So, uh, definitely always appreciate asking that question too, because reading so important, um, really appreciate you both Sharon and Ed, uh, joining me today and, uh, really enjoyed our conversation and, uh, hope to have you all on again. And, and as I always in my uh, podcast, go Cubs and uh, <laughs> let's have a let's have a great uh, let's have a great baseball season. OK, thank you very much, Tyler. Thanks. Thanks, Tyler. See you, Ed. See you, Sharon.